Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have Chris Hatfield, who is founder and coach at Sales Psyche, as my guest. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background so they understand where you're coming from? Yeah, sure. So I've been in sales my whole career, which has been about 13 to 14 years now. Came out of university and sort of fell into it like most of us do. And uh, first job, door-to-door sales, commission only. Kind of, You couldn't pick anything more stressful and more anxious, but it did in fact affect my, my mental health at the time and, and led me down this route in my sales career of finding out a bit more about what makes us tick from a psychological perspective, neuroscience perspective, and, and mindfulness perspective. Throughout my career, always had a passion for coaching, having gone to university and wanting to be a sports coach. So I had that in my blood. And it got to a point a few years ago where I decided to set up my own podcast series and consulting. Not another sales guy was born. And 130 episodes later, that podcast is still going strong. To the point last year, after leading the sales enablement function for a fintech company called Payment Sense, I decided I needed to go and do my own thing. And we'll get into this. But I, I really believe that there's a lot of things within sales that has been neglected, particularly around mental health and well-being and the mindset. So Sales Psyche was born. And uh, that's me in a nutshell. Fabulous. Thank you. Well, look, I know that mental health and well-being are hot topics at the moment, but there's still a large quorum of sales leadership that still has this rather archaic, how can one put it, Jurassic perspective that they're not running a fucking holiday camp. So what do you have to say to them, first of all? Yeah, I think it's a, you know, and it's understandable. It's 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 how people are brought up is a lot of the time. And of course, this kind of like mindset of a stiff upper lip and thinking some of the questions I get asked sometimes is, well, is it not going to give people an excuse if we start talking about it more? Does it give people a get out of jail card to think, oh, I can I can have a day off? But my question to them and people listening is, well, you know, do you not think that's happening at the moment? But just people are saying they've got the flu or they've got a stomach bug is if you're not talking about it, it's it's still happening. It's just a greater threat because you're not doing anything about it. That's not a, a fair point. But the real issue there is, have you hired the right people? Yeah. Uh, because yeah. if people are trying to use stuff as an excuse, you haven't found people who are motivated to be in the, your job. And you have to look in the mirror before you start pointing the finger at your salespeople. Mm-hmm. Look into the mirror at yourself and ask yourself, well, first of all, are we creating the conditions that allow people to and encourage people to thrive? Have we hired the right people or have we just gone on a land grab to try and find enough salespeople that we can burn through in the hope that some of them will work out? Because that seems to be a fairly common culture within the sales environment. Again, I'd be curious on your thoughts about that. It is, and I think, you know, maybe we have a bit of a different spin on this climate, but recently I think companies have had to evolve a lot more now because I think salespeople have probably got a bit more choice than ever before in the ways they can find roles and opportunities, and it might be different in this climate, but I think if you're going to burn through people, it's very easy to to have that reputation tarnished and for people to be able to see that and to hear about it, and then your reputation is obviously impacted, and I think it impacts the relationships with your customers as well, because I know many customers who will now go on Glassdoor and look at companies that they they might be using their services of and actually like see what it's like to work there, to get a feel, because it's a good indication of how they're going to be working with you is how they treat their own people. And if they're not treating them well, then they're probably going to treat you the same or, or even worse. 
But going back to your initial point as well about the holiday camp side of things, I think even if you don't feel like you've got a moral obligation for this, is it's costing you money. It costs the UK economy 45 billion a year at the moment, poor mental health. Um, and How much? 45 billion a year. Right. And 29 billion of that is presenteeism. So it's not even about people not turning up. It's about people being at work who aren't working to their full capacity because they've got things going on that they don't feel comfortable talking about or don't have the tools to do something about. So it costs on average for every 10 sales reps and managers about 16 grand a year and about 43 working days lost. So if you haven't got, a, if you don't feel like you've got a moral obligation, then financially it's impacting you whether you like it or not. That's a big chunk of change. Yeah. So if you are a soulless, heartless capitalist, at least those numbers must make you break up your ears. So what, what are the four common questions that people ask about mental health that you commonly come across? I think one of them is like talking about that balance of how do you, how do you take care of it without impacting performance? And I think it, this is an idea that you need to give up one to achieve the other, that you need to support someone's mental well-being, which means that you don't drive performance, or you need to drive performance, which means it impacts it. But that's not the case. I think the biggest question is how you balance it. One of them is just having that communication, having that culture where you, you create that environment, and it comes from above, from leaders leading that conversation and being open and being vulnerable about it to encourage people to, to feel like they can talk, but to still have that accountability and that relationship. Because if you feel like you can talk to someone and they're, they're there to support you, you feel like you want to go harder. You feel like you want to work for them more. You feel like you want to push a bit further. Um, and I think it can really create that camaraderie and, and that culture to to want to work there and want to work well, not just for your own performance, but for your team and your manager and the business. So that's one of them. Okay. And the others? The other question is, what's the real kind of like value of talking about mental health and well-being, and why is mindfulness important? I think, you know, we talk about in sales, we need to understand our prospects more effectively. We need to understand what they're selling. But if you don't understand yourself, then how are you meant to understand all of those things? Absolutely. Really? Now, if you don't have a great self-awareness of, of what makes you tick, what makes you great, and where your potential blind spots are, and, and also on a daily basis, why you might be feeling amazing some days and terrible another, then how are you really ever going to operate and connect with people more effectively? And I think you know, by understanding more about what makes you tick, by understanding more about those things, that those limiting beliefs, that raising that emotional intelligence, I think you can really harness it. And I think it is what makes... The, the good salespeople different from the great ones because when you took when people say oh, I'm I'm doing everything that the other person's doing I'm saying everything they're do, they're saying but they're probably not thinking the same way that's the biggest difference there okay I am curious uh, again to your response to the question yeah how does mindfulness and mindset impact the bottom line how, how's it really going to make a difference I think it, it comes back to that point the presenteeism piece of it is you know this kind of lack of consistency which is so common in in sales i think you know only about 26 27 of people hit their target last year um or sorry the year before because obviously last year was a bit of a, a different how, how, how environment. many about 26 or 27 percent oh right okay that's much lower than the stats that i've been quoting i prefer yours uh, <laughs> in 2019 we were seeing 44 percent and in 2020, only 40%. But with statistics that low, 
what I've seen is only 13% of teams hitting quota. Now, that's a shockingly low number. And when you consider the amount of time, money, resource, blood, sweat, and tears that goes in to building a marketing pipeline, building sales pipeline, the cost of pursuit, it does strike me as an act of self-sabotaging insanity um, that leadership are not looking at all of the factors that genuinely affect morale, affect performance. Because the research that came out in December 2020 from Salesforce says that one of the, the single biggest determining factor of customer outcomes is employee experience. And if the salesperson's experience as an employee of your company is poor, you can guarantee that's being reflected in the outcomes and the experience of the customer. So their success is determined by your salespeople's mindset and mental health. Uh Uh, So why is it that so few companies have really genuinely embraced it as opposed to simply playing it uh, as a tick box exercise? I think because they just don't really, there's no real kind of compassion and empathy for it. I think it's more of a case of, this is how I see the world. This is how everyone else should see it. And, you know, sort of thinking, well, when I was, some of these founders and and companies are thinking, well, when I was going through my career, I didn't need to have a conversation about that. I didn't struggle with that. I just got told to get on with it. And of course, that that might be the case with yourself. But, you know, there's probably some challenges that have arisen from that that you're probably not dealing with. But it's because you're not you're not being open about it and, and and open-minded around thinking, well, how does this impact people? Because 20, 30 years ago, there weren't a lot of the stuff that's causing that kind of added pressure and influence on people now. That idea, you know, even in platforms like LinkedIn of that constant comparison, like 15, 20 years ago, you could just kind of crack on with your job and think, you know, yeah, I'm doing well in my business. And then now you've got LinkedIn and you're constantly indirectly comparing yourself to people sometimes. That can have that can have an impact on people. And I think companies who haven't adapted just probably don't realize it or do see it as a tick box because they haven't personally experienced it. Yeah, it that smacks of a total lack of empathy, though. Yeah. Which is probably... I mean, when my dad was going through uh, his early army training and the officer corps back in the 19... 19- mid to late 1960s. You know, officers were very much drivers, uh, very dominant, all that kind of stuff. And I, I've done a lot of work resettling uh, service personnel, moving them from the army or the their services into civilian life. And what I've noticed is the officer corps has changed dramatically. They're actually embracing the motto outside the gates of Sandhurst, uh, which says, serve to lead. And it's about service. But I I don't think that sales leadership has really moved on. Uh, You're seeing it in companies that are millennial-led. But, you know, fusty old buggers like me, who are still at the helm, are still of the mindset that you should grit your teeth and just take it like a man. It's a numbers game. And the, the way to success is just to work harder. I'm more of the mindset of Carl von Clausewitz. Uh, when he re- used to recruit Prussian officers, he would recruit them for intelligence and laziness, minimum effort, minimum loss of life. And I think in this day and age, modern sellers, you need to recruit for the same qualities because 
we're looking at statistics that are enough to cause most salespeople to just roll over and curl up in the fetal position. I was speaking to Jerry Hill last week from Connect and Sell. Now, this is a company that does 40 million cold calls a year, so they do know their stuff, and they're very data-driven. On average, it takes 33 dials to get through to a decision-maker, unless you're going for a senior executive in tech, in which case it's 46. And 41% of those, so four in 10, you have to go through at least two layers just to make an effective connection. And each of those takes two minutes and 45 seconds. So you're talking about a shed load of time that's being buried in unproductive, uh, disappointing work. And it can be three hours between conversations for a salesperson if they're dialing manually without using tech or without using a service like Connect and Sell. And you're thinking how hard it is to get hold of someone's direct dial number or a mobile. So you're hammering away, beating your head against the wall, trying to go through receptions and switchboards and all that kind of stuff. But most managers, there's still a preponderance of managers out there that really haven't come to grips with technologies like LinkedIn. What about video calling direct to someone's profile? But again, I've received two in the last two years. Now, I'm a senior executive. Why on God's earth aren't people using that more? I'm probably creating a rod for my own back there. Uh, (laughs) But it it just strikes me that there are so many decent bits of uh, ways of working around these challenges that would enhance the experience of salespeople. But they're being told, just do one thing, you know, hammer the phone, or uh, they're depending on email. And the email response rates, they're below 1%. That has to be soul-destroying. Yeah, I I find it interesting because you have this classic debate, particularly on LinkedIn, of, You've got your Daniel Disney saying cold calling is dead. Then you've got your kind of Benjamin, your world-hated UK sales trainer talking about cold calling. And I think they can all coexist. Again, talking about early evolving and performance is you need a bit of everything. And, and to your point, for example, I use LinkedIn a lot. I use LinkedIn voice notes. I, I use my own podcast to generate opportunities. And I'm not saying every rep should go and start a podcast, but then there might be a way of of doing that for your company and, and running one that, that indirectly does it and I think particularly now it's just thinking of how you you know the whole pattern interrupt conversation that's been going on a lot more recently of how you do that because it is it is so noisy out there to really get someone's attention and to to maintain it you know it's interesting because you talk about email there email filters are getting smarter you're being able to cut off pretty much in probably a couple of years cold emails might even not be able to be sent with the way gmail's being well, yeah, the, if you look at the way most people give out email addresses, I mean, companies are spending 10, 20 bucks a pop to acquire an email that you never look at. It's the one that you give out when you want to download something, which you're probably not going to read anyway. Yeah. And you're talking about response rates of uh, one in a hundred, if you're lucky. Uh, sorry, open rates of one in a hundred. And then response rates are even lower. Advertising, just as shitty. quadrillion adverts are served up that get zero or one click. Every year, costing $265 billion a year uh, to businesses that choose to advertise on Facebook and Google. It's criminal, absolute waste. Then you're pointing the finger at the salespeople and blaming them. So it, it does strike me that there are these horrific blind spots that exist which are fueling 
the rise in mental illness. I mean, a third of the UK population suffers from some form of pre-COVID, suffered from some form of mental illness. Mm-hmm. That's one in three, for God's sake. And COVID will only have exaggerated that. And uh, sales as a profession has a particularly high preponderance of, of mental uh, ill health. What on earth is going on? Why is it that we're still having the debate about taking care of our salespeople's mental health? I, I mean, surely by now, um, there must be a groundswell which is saying, you know, this is bloody obvious. Of course, now what can we do about it? Yeah. I mean, to add to that, you're three times more likely to struggle with your mental health if you work in sales. And recent statistics show that the fifth biggest cause of death is work-related stress. Really? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That's terrifying. So, yeah, exactly. And it's it, it's something that is kind of almost stress is made out to be, you know, it's part of your job or it's made to be this kind of thing which you just have to accept. But I think why it's kind of like stuck like that is comes back to it stems from the top. It's, it's like you say, these millennial companies are thinking about it differently. But I think our older companies are sort of stuck in that kind of industrial revolution style of management, where, of course, you didn't have all the technology and tools that you do now to be able to measure performance and look at the data and look at the numbers. But I think managers, and this probably comes into a bit of imposter syndrome, have this feeling of almost needing to justify their roles too much, that they they need to be focused on performance because that's what they understand. That's what they've been trained in. That's what they know. They don't know as much about well-being because it's not taught in schools. It's not taught at university. No one teaches you about self-awareness. So they don't know how to manage or measure that. So they don't. You have to wear boxing gloves at night. I don't know that's self-touching, my mistake. You touched on another area, which I think is really important, which is middle managers. Middle managers are the most in the most precarious position of any role in any company that I know of. They're under pressure from below because they've got to help those people hit their number. And they're spending most of their time rescuing and working with the weak and trying to get deals over the line and beating the table in their chest about pipeline. From above, they're getting pressure as well. But I I think one area that we should really uh, spend a a good deal of effort on is well-being at the middle manager level. Are you seeing uh, people asking questions about that? Yes and no. Like, and if they're not asking questions, it is something that I, I talk to people a lot because they think it, it's all about the reps. And, and this is where it comes down to the intention of if you are looking at improving well-being, what's the reason behind it? Is it just because of the numbers? Is it just a checklist? And sometimes people will come to me and say, oh, we need our reps are struggling. And it's often because of the managers are that the reps are because they're not having that, that kind of correlation and it's feeding down to them. So yeah, I think it's something that's being asked about more and it is something I think that can be done so much. I think if I was to spend any time, I probably would spend it more with the managers because then they can enable the the reps more effectively rather than the other way around. You can you can do all you want with with a team, but as you said, if you're getting these pressures and and all these things from above, it's not really going to change those behaviors in the long run. You're just going to feel that pressure and stress. So what are the signs that managers should be looking for in themselves? Let's start with that. Yeah, so burnout is a big thing. And you know, a survey of Uncrushed last year found that two out of three people in sales are either experiencing or had experienced burnout. Um, so it's a very common thing. And, and people say, oh, you know, I've been burnt out. But burnout is really like, you know, full on. It can lead to depression. It can kind of lead to that 
disconnect, that lack of motivation. Um, so I think one of the biggest signs of burnout is having that kind of like stress overload constantly within your system. Chronic stress is what leads to burnout and stress is designed to help servers in a situation. But if you keep putting yourself in a stressful situation or telling yourself you're stressed constantly, you will lead to, to burnout around it. So I think it's being mindful of what is making you stressed and, and also how are you reacting to it? How are you dealing with it? Because of course, some people go down the route of thinking, oh, I'm just going to accept it. And then they'll think, oh, I'm just going to have a few few beers after work because that's how I deal with it. That's my escapism. But of course, that can lead to a, to a whole different problem and, and fix and an addiction around it. So I think that's one of the things. And I think the other thing is, is almost questioning like with your style, going back to that imposter syndrome, what is it? What's the reason you're you're doing this? What's the reason? And just chat and challenging yourself more to ask yourself, why is it the way you manage? Like, what's the reason behind it? And it's not always easy to do by yourself, of course. I'd, I'd encourage people to you know find a coach, find a mentor, or find someone in the business if you've got a coaching function to have that conversation with. But I think just people often too much just accept the way they are as a manager. And the problem with that is they then manage people how they were managed or how they think they want to be managed, which doesn't roll. What I've seen time and again is people do what was done to them. Yeah. Because that's their point of reference. And under pressure, even if they have been trained, they revert back to what they learned first. So I, I've, I've seen people spiral down. I'm feeling quite blessed at the moment because I, I genuinely don't feel any of those pressures or stresses. I'm, I'm carrying a lot of responsibility but I, I genuinely don't feel stressed or pressured by it. And I feel very uh, fortunate because I, I look around and I hear these stories regularly of people burning out. And when investors come in or there's a change of ownership and all of a sudden people are looking over their shoulder, worrying about whether they're going to be able to pay the mortgage next month because they'll lose their job. Targets over assignment of quotas is a really common cause of stress that's needless. So if you're trying to grow your business to, I don't know, 100 million, and you add up everyone's quota, and they all add up to 150 million, that's a really good indication that leadership is not being mindful of the stress and pressure that they're putting on middle management and the sales team. So you see these sales floors littered with the corpses of people who've been burnt out. And uh, the you know the high turnover in the sales team. I mean, I come across uh, companies last year where uh, turnover rates were 116 percent, and even higher than that. And it just strikes me as a, an incredible waste. Why not actually recruit well, onboard well, train well, coach well, so that you got people who can actually hit their stride? Because the research that uh, Dr. Phil McGowan put out in his PhD that he completed last year, suggests that salespeople hit their stride in their third year. Now, if you're turning over people every five or six months, and maybe one in three make it past six months to a year, but most of those then fail, then no one ever hits their stride. It just strikes me as incredibly stupid and wasteful. I think it is very... It's narrow-minded, and I think you know the challenge is, of course, there is no education around sales. You kind of have to learn on the job. You don't, you can't do it well. Saying that, it's the universities who started doing degrees around it, but I think up until now, it's been very hard 
to, to that's the only experience you're going to get. Any other profession, you go and do a degree around. It. If you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, you go and do you go and do that bit, and you you kind of go through that. Whereas sales, it pretty much is your first job and first few, you know. And I think it's people always have those doubts because one of the biggest things I think could be done, which is so simple, is addressing the elephant in the room when you when new people do start. Is telling people how they're going to feel, what they're going to think at certain points. So when someone comes in going, look, after two or three weeks, when you're prospecting, you're working from home right now, you're going to start to think like this. You're going to start to think, is this job for me? Or you're going to start to feel really anxious and stressed and think, you know, what are they thinking of me? And when you do, come to me and we'll talk about it. Because if not having that conversation, and I start to think like that two or three weeks, I think they told me all the great stuff. They told me what I can achieve, but no one's mentioned this. So maybe I'm the only one who feels like this or thinks of this. Maybe sales isn't for me. Maybe I'm not right for the job. And then that self-doubt creeps in and that lack of self-worth, which leads to them going down a kind of more negative route and negative path, which then leads the company to think, oh, maybe they're not the right fit for us. Well, this then speaks to the whole um, idea that you need to have a partnership between management and the sales team. Partners help each other to get better. And uh, unless there is that two-way dialogue instead of just the monologue and the broadcast from the manager down, then you're not really ever going to learn what's going on in your sales team. And more importantly, you're just going to burn through these people. So what advice would you give to a first-time manager in terms of getting their head on straight and making sure that they are establishing the right expectations with the first new hire? Yeah. I think having a mentor is so important. I, you know, I've always got a bit of a motto. I always have a mentor, always be a mentor. So I think having someone, and it doesn't have to be inside your business, you know, there's a great way now of LinkedIn, the Revenue Collective, other places to go and find people that you aspire not to be, but to, to kind of, whether it's in their role or what they're doing, to take some of the characteristics from. I think that's the biggest thing. I think secondly is, we've talked about it a couple of times, but the empathy and the compassion piece is, if you're a first-time manager and you've got a new hire, put yourself in their shoes. And if you can't, if you haven't been in that role, go and spend some time with people in your company that have before they come in and ask them, like, what were some of the things? Like, I had a couple of people in my pod the other week and this guy from Engage Tech, Jack, he's now their top performer, but he thought about leaving for the first two or three weeks or three or four months, like two or three times. And the only reason he didn't was... He had that open communication to go, look, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking and got that reassurance. So I think setting the expectation, setting that kind of mutual agreement from the off and saying, look, here's what, here's what I expect from you, but here, and, and not just obviously talking about performance there, but here's what I expect from you from conversation and here's what you can expect from me. Here's what I'll do for you. And realizing as a leader, your role is not to motivate someone, is not to... It's not to motivate someone, it's to create an environment where they feel motivated, a psychologically safe one for them to thrive in. Well, you can't motivate anyone. Motivation comes from within. Yeah, but well, that's a, there's a whole different debate here about, because that's one of the biggest misconceptions of motivation is that people do sometimes feel like motivation is this rah-rah, like let's get everyone on a Zoom call, let's put an incentive in, let's put another monetary thing in, involved that when people don't reach, they, they'll feel even less motivated, ironically. But I think that's that's one thing is just thinking, if I've got a new hire coming in, is address the elephant in the room, make them realize I'm there to support them, I work for them, I'm here to enable them. And don't be afraid to 
to go and seek help and, and find that mentor, find that support, and don't expect yourself to think, I'm going to get it right first time. I think this also speaks to the need to have a really effective onboarding process. Mm-hmm. That first 120 days are when a new hire, whatever their level within the organization, those first four months are when the new hire is deciding, is this the job I was sold? One of my favorite jokes is what do you call a conversation between two adults where both sides are lying through their teeth? A job interview. And the problem is that um, in most interviews, people are trying to put the best foot forward. And I think that's a mistake. I think you should tell them warts and all what it's really going to be like so that the expectations are established clearly up front. And they know what the ups and downs are. And just like you said, Chris, you know, make sure that uh, they understand that this is what's probably going to happen. And when that happens, you know, please call me. It's normal. You know, I'm the expert in helping people get through this. And it, my, my job is to make sure that we do help you get through it. We've hired you because we genuinely believe you are the right person for the job. And you know, you, managers only have five functions. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above, and manage inclusively so that they have a voice. And you know, listen to what they have to say, because otherwise it just feels like they're just another cog in the machine. Sales is the simplest, most difficult job on the planet. It's not complicated. Your job is to find people who have problems that you can fix and deliver them the outcome that they want and then go to the bank. That's it. Mm-hmm. But in order to get there, there is a whole heap of really difficult work that needs to be done. And it requires a strong self concept. It requires a very high degree of empathy. And it requires a, a really good ability to manage adversity and have high levels of endurance to be coachable. You need to be able to solve problems intelligently. Uh, you have to take personal responsibility and hold yourself to account and not be, uh, need to be nursemaided. nursemaided. So you, uh, not being needy, but being there when you're needed. And You've got to have high degrees of empathy. You've got to be curious. It helps that you're a team player. You know, lone wolves can survive in certain environments, but actually contribution as a salesperson is really important because then you everybody lifts everyone else. And healthy competition is not a bad, problem, a bad thing, but if all you're doing is you're in it for yourself, then you're probably not serving your customer. So uh, Joe Mullings talks about, you know, hire people who are high on trust and uh, mid-level in terms of competence, because you're far more likely to find someone who will will thrive and survive for longer and deliver what the customer wants, because they're trusted internally. They can generate uh, discretionary effort. But salespeople can't survive on their own unless you're just very in a very transactional, pilot, high, sell it, cheap kind of environment. And even then, it's not a particularly healthy place to be. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, things you mentioned then. You probably read the book, The Transparency Sale. Where talk yeah. about, and talking about that job interview piece is obviously the, the kind of one of the main premises around it is that people aren't looking for perfect. And what really resonates with people is that kind of, you know, 4, 4.2 kind of thing where you're, you're still being open with them about things that you're not. 
And I think that's really powerful. You know, something that's really worked for me with Sales Psyche, I've even got it on the website of this is what we're not. Um, and I think in a job interview, because all you're doing there, if you're telling people and you're setting them up for something and you're relying on this fancy office you can't use at the moment or this flashy website and colors and all they're doing is sitting in the living room and that's all it represents, then you're basically saying, well, we've sold you something that isn't really true. So you go and do the same to, to your prospects. You go and, and sell to them without telling them the things that they're not going to get and, and try and cover up everything or every little gap because that's the kind of example that we've set. And I think another thing that's missing from onboarding is this customer-centric approach to selling. Now, we focus so much on our product, our services, and if it's your first sales job and you get on the phone, no wonder sales, sales reps talk more than they ask questions or talk about themselves is because that's all they know. That's all they've been coached on and, and trained on. But if you can give an almost focus on, first of all, you know, I've worked with a couple of companies where they'll be like, right, first few weeks are actually going to learn about the industry, about the sector. You're going to go and spend, if you sell to CFOs, you're going to go and spend time with our CFO or we've got a couple of customers you can go and shadow for a day and work in their office to get a feel of that and get an idea. Because I think one of the biggest things now is, is it's how you're, there's so much information out there for prospects to decipher. It's not so much about you coming in and finding out what their problem is. It's also you helping them decipher that information and providing the kind of true insights to to help them understand that marketplace and to build that credibility at your end as well. That's fantastic advice. And it's something that I've implemented with all of my clients as well. We don't teach them about the product for weeks. What we're interested in is, do you understand the marketplace that we operate in? Do you understand the individual job functions, what it's like to be a CFO, a chief operating officer, a head of risk, a head of operations, a chief executive? If you don't understand the human beings that you're selling to, then all you are is a product monkey. And no one wants to buy product. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know, bugger me, what I really want is a router. Um, I, you know, I, I've waited my whole life to buy a server. It yeah. just doesn't happen. So you've got to understand the human beings. You need to understand the outcomes. So what, what are those critical outcomes that they're trying to achieve? What are the questions that they're asking? And what's it like to be where they are now? On a scale of zero to 10, what's it like to be in the zero to two space? What's it like to be the three to five, the six to eight, the nine to 10? Because what people buy is a better future. They rent the outcome for as long as they, uh, it's de delivering the value that they were hoping for. And most of these products and services don't exist in a vacuum. They're part of helping them to implement their overall strategy. And when people are investing, in fact, I'm running a series of roundtables on the podcast around why people buy. And what people seem to not understand is that no one's buying for now, really, unless it's a crisis purchase. They're trying to make the right investment choice that will serve them for the next two, three, four, five years. So... This is where, you know, if you don't teach your people to understand procurement, for example, I think you then uh, perpetuate this uh, hostility and this adversarial relationship uh, between sales and purchasing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of purchasing departments are just as guilty, in fairness. But we need to start thinking about the partnership that we can form with procurement. 
But most salespeople are just so fixated on hitting their quota so that they can keep their job for another month that they never get to think bigger than that. And yeah. you improve mental health dramatically if you let them see that bigger picture and see where they fit and what value they bring in all of this. Mm. Well, Before- another, yeah, I mean, another, I completely agree with what you're saying there. I think another thing is like understanding how people buy, like, and people believe that B2C is more of an emotional buying experience than B2B, but it's actually not true. Um, you know, because when it's emotional, yeah, uh, but, but when you're if you look at it like B2C, if you buy a pair of trainers, you feel regret. If you buy the wrong system in B2B, you feel shame, you feel blame. There's more pressure and more emotion attached to a B2B experience of buying because there's more risk involved. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about confidence of, of how you're selling your product, but what not a lot of people pay attention to is building the confidence of people you're building their own self-confidence in making them realize they are making the right decision regardless of who you are, but building their own sort of self-worth rather than just thinking it's all about you and building your co- their confidence in you. This is interesting. You just sparked a thought on, in me in terms of how managers need to use story in order to help build that confidence and create the conditions for um, healthy minds. So again, I'm, I don't know whether or not this is something that you focus on at all, uh, but it strikes me that story is a very powerful tool in this context. Yeah, I love storytelling. I love, I've just um, finished reading for about the third time the book Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. But yeah, I think sto- storytelling is so powerful in sales, in management, in a way to, to, build, to bring that emotion out. And I think, you know, going back to the point of mental health and well-being is the more you can look at your job and actually realize it's a very emotive one, the more you can feel comfortable in being yourself and utilizing your personality rather than thinking everything is regardless of what you sell, even when you sell to CFOs. Thinking, if all you're thinking is this is a rational job, this is logic, then you just build that kind of monotonous feeling and you don't bring those emotions out, which brings that, that impact on your mental well-being. Well, I've um, been interviewing people in senior executive roles for my clients so that they have a reference point. And the CFO I interviewed a couple of weeks back was really very insightful because he spends his day trying to put out fires. And he goes from one fire to the next. And people are setting them for him all over the shop. And he's having to try and put those out. He's also, at the same time, trying to implement the board's strategy. So he's feeling an enormous amount of pressure there. His day job gets done between about 6.30 in the morning and 8.30, and then from 6 o'clock at night till about 10 o'clock, because during the day, he's being pulled from pillar to post, putting out fires, getting sucked into meetings, dealing with people coming with a begging bowl, and trying to referee other people's children. (laughs) And he's spending his time battling with all of this. Then salespeople turn up. And they've got about two and a half minutes to capture his attention. Because if they haven't been able to enter into his world, identify through the power of story the kind of outcomes that he is likely to be trying to achieve, then he's not really going to give them the full time. So he's got a bunch of tactics in order to get them out within 10 minutes, within half an hour, to make sure that he's not having his time further wasted. 
And it, what he's looking for, and I've heard this from a number of senior executives, they look forward to good sales calls. They welcome a good cold call. 80, McKinsey did a study, 86% hate receiving cold calls, 83% love receiving a good one. And that was the same study. Um, so the, the lesson here is that most cold calls are crap because they talk about you, your company, your product, mm -hmm. and they're not relevant. They're not timely. They're not adding value. So again, if you want to reduce the stress on you as a salesperson or you want, as a manager, you want to reduce the stress on your salespeople, then help them be relevant, help them be timely, help them add value so that they don't end up getting one rejection after another that they find the routine. I mean, I, I saw an awful statistic uh, last year, which is that on average, it takes 19 touches to get one uh, effective conversation with a, a CXO. Uh, you've got to ask yourself the question, what was it about the first 18 that were crap? Yeah, it's a good point. I always question those stats. Some people go, statistics and numbers are great, but you should always be questioning them rather than just accepting them. But a couple of things you mentioned there about welcoming it, I think, and I posted about this on LinkedIn the other week, is it's persistence versus pestering. I think people will always admire someone who will always say, oh, you persist and I admire that because you've done it the right way, versus pestering is kind of doing the same thing over and over again, sending the same templated email, trying to do the same cold call, whereas persistence is thinking about things in a different way where people can see that you've You've put the hard yards in, you've put the work in, you've looked to find out about them. I think that's the real kind of difference there. And it's kind of questioning yourself every time you do something is, how is this standing out? Am I pestering someone or am I being persistent here? And one of the things related to stories that I think really helps is you might have heard the book Story Brand by Donald Miller, where he talks about identifying the villain. Who's your prospect's yeah. villain? And I think that's such a great way and a great analogy to kind of think about it because it removes yourself from that situation and thinks about their world before your own. Again, one of the qualities we have to look for in salespeople and in managers is a very high EQ. If you can't see the world through someone else's lens, then I think you will really struggle in sales and you're probably better off in another profession. You can learn these things, but you have to care. And what, what I'm still befuddled by is why we spend so much energy as a, a profession just recruiting people in order to fill a, a vacancy rather than taking the time to recruit well. And that must add a lot to the mental stress within the, uh, the culture of an organization because it drives the revolving door. It drives that relentless misery that every month, uh, Monday morning weekly ass kicking dressed up as a sales meeting uh, represents. Listening to people lie from this work of fiction, also known as a forecast. You just got to wonder how many times you have to crack your head against the brick before you stop blaming it for your headache. Yeah. Is it just me? No, I, I agree. And I think too many companies look at it externally and think, oh, they just weren't the right fit for us. They weren't, you know, they, they didn't have what we, what we look for. It's like, well, if this keeps happening, maybe you don't have it. Maybe your culture is something that you need to look at. Because like you say, if you have that environment, it puts people on edge. It, it might mean that you've got some top performers in there, but they might think, oh, I have to keep doing this, otherwise I'm out. 
which can lead to things like burnout or or people coming in and sort of having that on edge and it's not an it's not an environment you want to work in i think you know particularly with where the world's going and being able to probably work more remotely now and not having to rely on location as much there is going to be more opportunity for good salespeople, good human beings above all to to have their choice and to go do you know what i don't need to work here i don't need to to, to work here, I found something because it's the right kind of environment and they treat it beyond just it being a flashy office with a free beer on a Friday and free fruit. I think the COVID crisis is going to clear out a lot of dross from our profession, but it's also going to raise, force organisations to raise their game dramatically because you know, how do you make sure that your remote team are in good mental shape? How do you make sure that you're there supporting them? I guess a lot of your work at the moment is around that. Yeah, I think the big thing, again, like I keep going back to addressing the elephant in the room, but you know, I had a few guys from Reward Gateway on, on my podcast, Dominic Taylor was on, and he said, he shared a post about it yesterday. He said he started off a meeting going, how's everyone doing? And everyone's like the typical, yeah, yeah. And he goes, he's, he runs the team. He's like, I'm having a shit day. I've had to have a go and lie down this afternoon. I've never experienced that. And him doing that, everyone else is like, oh, we can talk about it now. You know, it's all very well saying all these things, can we've got an open door policy, give me a call if you need support. But if you're not leading by example, people are just going to think it's a trap or think, are you going to use this against me? Another company I spoke to, they'll have this thing, what are you leaving at the door? So every meeting, every kind of weekly meeting from the most senior person in the room, they'll talk about what they're leaving at the door. So what what is it something that's on your mind at the moment that's impacting you and go around? And obviously, it's, it's not asking people to bear all, but it's the idea is to make people realise that, you, you know, it's natural to have things going on externally at the moment around that. But but yeah, I think, you know, for me with Sales Psyche, one of the reasons I set it up is to, is to provide that education and that prevention around it rather than just getting to crisis mode all the time. And then all we're doing at the moment is encouraging people to talk about it, but often people don't talk about it until they're really struggling. And because you're not used to talking about it, that's why you don't know how to. And the, the only experience you've got is when you're struggling. You, you feel like, well, I've not talked about it up until now, so how am I meant to in my worst situation? Well, Michael Brody Waite, who wrote Lead Like a Drug Addict, and uh, he talks about practicing rigorous authenticity. And he taught, he's got a number of stories in his book, which is definitely worth a read because he's battled throughout his life with himself with his addiction up until 2002 and then uh, with recovery since then and recognizing that uh, each time he failed to practice rigorous authenticity it dragged him back down and he started to drift again and he almost lost his company in the same year he went through a divorce because he wasn't rigorously authentic with his fiance before they got married. And so they spent 18 months to two years not being happy. Then he allowed himself to not be rigorously authentic within his business. And the business had grown like wildfire. And then things went on and they hired someone who was very divisive. And they, he didn't confront the issue. And he was drifting and drifting and drifting. And he almost got kicked out of his own business by his business partner because this other person had driven a wedge between them. And when they finally brought in someone from HR to audit the company, everything pointed, get rid of this very divisive person. When they did, 
and uh, he admitted to his team just how much he'd been hiding and putting away. They all rallied around him. And uh, in fact, uh, this had happened to him before. You know, he built this business. He, uh, where they were just on TV. There were five people, and they were just about to pick up a contract with something like 50,000 patients and uh, you know, thousands of hospitals all across the US. And he said, I've got to be honest, I've got no idea how to be a CEO. What the hell do I do? And they all rallied around again. So again, th this is really key. People will rally around and support you. But there are three Ps. My uh, pal, Bill Bartlett, came up with this concept within his coaching book, um, The Sales Coach's Playbook. And it's permission, parity, and protection. And in the coaching relationship, it's very important that you are equals, but you have different roles. Mm -hmm. You have permission to speak your mind, to tell your truth. And protection means that you're not going to be punished for doing it. And this is really key. And again, a lot of people are very brittle. A lot of managers are very brittle. And um, so they won't open up. But if you want someone to be vulnerable, you need to be vulnerable first. So that example that you cited, I think, was excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, we've mentioned it a couple of times, this idea of um, imposter syndrome. You know, we talk, we've given managers, you know, a bit of a hard time on this. And quite rightly so, there are a lot of people out there that, couldn't do things, but I think again, it's it's being more self aware of, of is it something you're doing because you're trying to justify your role, and are you comfortable? Because some people aren't comfortable going into a session without an agenda. We're, we're letting your salesperson lead it. They feel like they have to be adding value. They feel like they have to have all the answers. And this comes back to you know mental health and well being. The reason why there's that fear of talking about it sometimes is thinking, what happens if I don't know the answer? What happens if I say the wrong thing? And first of all, you don't need to be the person who has the answers. Like that's you need to be the person to help them find the answers. Because often, when it is around those kind of topics, you're not going to be there. You're not a therapist. You're not a psychologist. You're not a counselor. You're not going to help someone who's had 20 years of this in an instance by saying something. But I think it's just about holding space for people and not passing that conversation on and going, go and speak to HR, go and speak to people about it. Because if someone's built the confidence up, and the trust and that relate that sort of it's taken a lot of courage to come to you. Don't then just go and brush it off and think, oh, yeah, go and speak to HR or people about it. Like be that kind of bridge for them around it as well. Hmm. Very interesting. Sandler Research Center did a study last year that the findings were that only six percent of sales managers are fit for purpose. So there are a lot of people in sales management roles who haven't been groomed and trained for that role. They'd get tapped on the shoulder and one day they're a rep, the next day they're a manager. Yeah. And I think a lot of really hard work needs to go into creating that runway because the skill set is completely different. Being a top producer is about hitting your number. Being a top manager is about helping other people to succeed. Unless you have that mindset, you may well be miscast, and it's probably not your fault. It's difficult to turn down a promotion. But one of the things that we really have to look at is the career path to move into sales management and creating that runway with a minimum of six months, but I would recommend 12 to 18 months, learning the skills. So one of the things that we're implementing with the companies that I'm working with is the last person in is the person who then coaches the next person in. So they become a buddy, they onboard them, 
They teach them the ropes. They uh, introduce them around the company. And very quickly, you start running sales meetings. You do a bit of coaching. You do. Uh, you get involved in recruitment so that you learn those skills. If you want to move into management, if you haven't learned that stuff before you take on the role, you're going to make a bloody awful manager. Yeah. Because uh, you'll do the things that were inflicted on you. And, and also with that as well, similar to what I talked about earlier, being in a sales role and feeling and thinking things and then thinking, is this right for me? That's what happens when you move into management. Because if, if the pathway isn't created and you think, oh, I have to because it's just expected of me, you go into it and things don't go well. You then think, well, maybe I'm, I'm not the right fit. And then, of course, pride steps in, ego steps in, thinking, oh, I can't go back to selling around that. I think it's so important to, like you say, to have that runway, to have... I love that, that idea of of having that kind of passing the baton on each time as well to create that coaching culture and environment also for people to realize. And also, you know, making it okay for people in your team and again, addressing this and saying, not all of you are going to want to go into management. Don't feel yeah. like you have to sell me. You want to become a sales manager or don't feel like you tell me you can't, you don't want to be because you don't, you want, you might think I'm, I think that you're taking your eye off the ball, but you know, there's there's no reason. I think we have this very rigid thinking sometimes of of roles of an organisation. We think it's a SDR, an AE, or whatever it might be, and then a manager as well. If someone, and by having that experience you mentioned, someone might think, actually, do you know what? I don't want to be a manager, which is just as valuable, is to go, well, let's see what we can do within the business to create a new role for you, to raise that ceiling, to give you something still to to strive for, but isn't that kind of like, you know, cookie-cutter approach to it? I think that whole conversation around career pathing in the recruitment process, in the onboarding process, and in the first two years of being in the company are really key. Give people an opportunity to sample what it's like. And do they want to go into a senior SDR kind of role? Do they want to go into field sales or account executive? They want to go into an account development, account growth role. Um, I want to do away with the account management role because I think what that involves is zookeeping rather than development. Do they want to go into management or do they want to go into the channel? And give them a taste and a smattering of all of that. See where their strengths lie. Look at how you can help them develop and give them something to look forward to. Because I think part of the challenge here as well is if you think you're getting the same it's going to be the same old thing every day, then time passes very slowly. It's excruciating. And yeah, yeah, we've got to get really smart about this because if we want to get the best out of our people, then allow them to really spread their wings, give them a voice, listen to what they have to say, encourage them to be vulnerable, be vulnerable yourself. And these are things that, I you know, feel that my generation are guilty of suppressing or ignoring. And uh, you know, if, if you're listening and you're a fusty old bugger like me in your 50s, then wake up. You can derive a lot more value out of your people by helping them to be fully engaged, giving them a voice, uh, and it takes a lot of pressure off you. You don't have to have all the answers. They, they probably already have them. They're speaking to your customers. They're talking amongst themselves. There is an opportunity here. Use it and use it wisely in order to improve the environment in which we have to operate. 
Chris, this has been really insightful. Thank you. We're coming to the top of the hour. Tell me, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? One of the things I've started thinking about recently, you know, we've talked about a lot of noise out there. And, you know, of course, everyone going online, there's now like a ton, and there was before, like of online content, free content, paid content, is is almost thinking how you make it more user-friendly for people to consume. You know, I think e-learning is something that has just been done to death too much. And the expectation that you're going to create this e-learning path, someone's going to go on there and 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 learn about it is how do you how do you make that engaging, particularly in a remote sales team onboarding? And we've talked about a lot of this of what can you do to create content, to create a program that's actually going to help people for real life scenarios and isn't just this overly theorized approach or this kind of here's all the good stuff, but we don't set you up for the really terrible stuff that's going to come your way as well. Very interesting. Uh, you might like to check out a guy called Avner Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, and um, he's set up a company called Project Moneyball. And he's one of the freshest minds in sales enablement on the planet. And what's really interesting is, uh, in fact, I um, released a podcast with him on Sunday this week, all about the power of simulations. So, you know, what's what's real life like? And let's practice for it. And it's really, really important that you expose people to it because the reality is in simulations and role plays, it's always far worse than reality. It's way tougher because in a role play, if you've got a salesperson playing the buyer, they're going to roll together the eight to 12 shittiest prospects they've ever had in one. And I've never, ever come across a prospect who is as bad as any of the people that I've role-played with. But having that practice under my belt uh, has meant that I go into those sessions and I'm perfectly comfortable. They can throw anything they like at me because it's never as bad as what I practiced for. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think on that as well, and I was talking to this uh, with a guy called Alfie Marsh, who's head of US sales at Spendesk, um, you know, there's so much content in terms of like these free webinars, these hour-long pieces where you go in and and you can spend time in them and think, actually, have I really learned anything? Or have it just sort of, you know, surface level kind of, you've just done this so I can get an email address from you and and then sell to you in some sequence event. They're thinking, how do you go beyond that and provide value like re- without really any expectation in return always? And you know, the app Blinkist about condensing books. I've started thinking with my own content on Sales Psyche. How can I create that where I can, we can deliver sessions, but then we can almost create a condensed five to seven minute version to go have a listen to this. And then it might spark that interest to go for something bigger rather than just expecting everyone to have to tune into these hour long webinars all the time to, to get anything back from them. That's an interesting thought. Thank you for that. Okay. Tell me this, you've got your golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Chris age 23. <laughs> what one bit of advice would you give him? You know who would have probably ignored but would have been useful. I think it's kind of combined one, but there's always a positive from every experience you go through and, and it will all make sense in the end. Every time, you know, when I, when I was younger, things used to happen. I'd be like, why is it happening to me, and and I, I saw a Jim Carrey speech a few years ago, is that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. And I've always sort of thought about that, thinking I might not be able to make sense of it right now, but I've got to trust the process because this is leading to things. And and having that mindset means it stops me kind of being derailed in certain situations and 
and losing that momentum, losing that motivation, that focus, and keeping that kind of belief of just focusing on what I can control. And if I do that, then it will all work out in the end. Very good. One of my mentors, Mark Gorson, uh, taught me, let go or be dragged. Um, <laughs> control what you can, let go what you can't, and just get on with it. Because, I mean, there, there is no point stressing over stuff over which you have no control. No, it's like a rocking chair. You know, you go back and forwards, but you don't get anywhere. <laughs> I like that metaphor. Very good. Excellent. Okay, so tell me this. What are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you think other people should really pay heed to? Apart from your awesome podcast, of course, um, I would say another podcast is Masters of Scale by Reid Hoffman. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, um, some great insights on there, really well produced and, and gives you some ideas from very successful people, but also some people along the way who've been there. I think it's not a particular source, but, and again, it takes some sort of focus this, but like just going on LinkedIn and actually having that growth mindset to want to learn something. And yes, there's a lot of stuff on there, but that you can, you can control that of who you follow and who you don't. But I think going on there, and we use it a lot as a sales tool, but going on there as a learner and, and wanting to educate yourself is, is also a good mindset to have rather than trying to spot everything as an opportunity around that. That's really good advice. You know, I, I don't think enough people use LinkedIn with that mindset. They go on there to try and prospect rather than with that child mind of turning up to learn. Lots of people consume content, but they don't apply it. And that's yeah. the thing. Um, well, they consume it. They can, sorry, they consume it because they want to. They've got their selfish intentions at heart, thinking, "I want to consume this so I can use it in an email to say, oh, I read your, I read your article." And yeah. but they don't, they don't consume it to use it. They consume, well, they consume it to use it in a different way. Well, there, there's another angle on this which I learned early on when I started my training business, which is when you learn something, teach it within 24 hours. So there, uh, one other bit of advice I would give is learn to teach. Mm -hmm. So when you learn something, teach it to someone else within 24 hours. That way you have to understand it. Yeah. Uh, so both sides end up gaining from it. And yeah. There's, there's a double win. Well, to my point earlier, I've always have a mentor, always be one, because you're always learning then. And by reinforcing that, supporting other people, even if you've been a manager for a month, find a rep who wants to become a manager or find someone who's just started. And the more you teach back, the more you build that confidence and that self-worth and reassurance in yourself to feel like you don't have to justify it in other ways excellent so chris how can people get hold of you linkedin is is the main place i do a lot of content on there just type in chris hatfield not hadfield as some people think it's the astronaut who uh even when i type my name in on google it comes up with did you mean chris hadfield it's a personal goal of mine to try and rank above him on google for sales psyche side of things www sales psyche which is psyche.co.uk and in a nutshell we provide a, an online on demand um, blended training subscription and one-to-one -one confidential and impartial coaching sessions for sales reps commercial teams and managers as well excellent chris thank you very much really appreciate it you're welcome marcus so chris hatfield thank you very much thanks very much marcus if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company and your goal is to grow your business and achieve genuine, sustainable hypergrowth with a highly engaged uh, business who, and uh, highly productive employees, 
and clients who stick with you year after year, then schedule some time with me for a brief conversation. You'll see the link to do that at the, uh, in the blurb for uh, the podcast. You can reach me at marcus at laughslifeandlast.com. Contact me through a direct message on LinkedIn. And if you've enjoyed this conversation and others, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone else who would be, then please connect us. In the meantime, stay safe, happy mental health, and happy selling. Bye-bye.